Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. Merry Christmas, everybody. We're glad you joined us in the room. Thanks for coming. Appreciate seeing you this morning. Are you guys doing okay? You braved the weather. I just want you to know, um, I came all the way from Palmer this morning in, in, catch this, a Toyota Corolla with two-wheel drive. I was pushing snow with my bumper at 7 a.m. Almost got into an accident, but that's a success story. Um, And here I am and here you are, so no excuses today, but we are thankful you're in the room and for those of you who are joining us online and stay safe out there today. Um, Listen, speaking of being in the room, one of the things that my family loves to do is sit in our living room. And when we sit in our living room, uh, my son kind of got us moving in this direction and then my daughter got on board. Now we're all on board. We we look at reels that are funny and humorous and we have some of our favorite comedians. And one of my all-time favorite comedians, might be your all-time favorite comedian, um, is Jerry Seinfeld. Any Jerry Seinfeld fans out there? Absolutely, that's right. <laughs> He's worth a round of applause. Um, And Jerry Seinfeld just recently put out a bit, I thought it was super humorous and super funny, Um, and he basically suggests that that we never like where we're at. And so he goes through this whole reel, and I'll never never be Jerry Seinfeld, and that's not my intent this morning, but here's, here's how he says it. He says, basically, as soon as you get to the place that you were going, you want to leave. So you, you go home from work, and then you got to go back to work, and then, and then at work you go, i got to get out. And so you get out, and then you decide you want to take a trip, and so you get on a plane, and when you get on the plane, uh, you, you have to get off the plane, and then you have to leave wherever you're at, and he just kind of goes on and on and on. And here's his point. His point, this is, oh, this is, if you know Jerry Seinfeld, like this is him in a nutshell, right? His point is this. Nobody wants to be anywhere, and nobody likes anything. Except when it comes to Christmas. Christmas is something that we're all attracted to. There's something about Christmas that moves us deeply. There's something that we enjoy. In fact, in fact, we actually try to bring something from 2,000 years ago into our home just to try to be a part of it. It's called a nativity. And I'm, I'm one of those guys, just full disclosure, that um, when we set up our nativity in our home, I definitely put the Magi in a different location. I find East, and I put them out there because I want my kids and I want everybody to know that comes to my home that they are two to three years away from the visitation of Jesus, right? I mean, because that's biblically accurate and all God's people said, amen. 
I'm one of those guys, but we bring this story in because it's so powerful, because it's so poignant, because it's so important to us. It warms our hearts. But I want to ask this question this morning. What if, what if the reason that we're so attracted to the story is not the reason it was recorded for us to begin with? If you haven't noticed, as you read through the Gospels, what we aren't told is anything really about Jesus' teenage years or early adult years. In other words, one of the most um, you know, formative parts of anybody's experience on earth, and we don't know anything. We have one story about Jesus going to a temple when he's about maybe 12 years old, right? The reality is that we're not told so much about Jesus' life. We go straight from birth to ministry. Why? There's an intention behind it. The gospel writers told us about the birth of a child because they were telling us about the birth of a king. In other words, the story wasn't just meant to warm your heart. It was meant to put hell on notice. A king had been born. And if you don't believe that, all you have to do is read the account because Herod tells us what everybody felt. Herod tells us what everybody who had their own kingdom believed about the birth of a king. It was a disruption to the status quo. And all hell is put on notice. And we've been in Isaiah, and we've been talking about it, and the fact of the matter is Isaiah chapter 9 really amounts to a Jewish war prophecy. Birth of a king is really a significant event. It isn't just about a baby in a manger now. It isn't just something superficial that is heartwarming, but heaven has spoken. In fact, what I want to do is I want to read the passage for you, and I want you to read it with that lens, with that fresh pair of eyes. There was a king who was coming, and here's how the prophet Isaiah describes it for us. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. We camped out on this just a little bit a couple weeks ago or last week as well, and we just simply said, listen, this is, this is not a peacemaker. This is a peacekeeper. He will have a dominion that is vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. This is a war prophecy. This is about a king who's going to come and he's going to take over. And he's going to have a dominion. And there's names that describe him. He's not just meant to be received. He's meant to be obeyed. He isn't just a savior. He's a sovereign. And this is the imagery that we get from the prophet Isaiah that we've been in for the last couple of weeks. But there's something surprising about this to us as we read it. Because you read these words and they're filled with hope. They're filled with anticipation with a sense of expectancy, uh, something great is coming, something earth-shaking. It's going to shake the earth and the heavens. Uh, a king is coming, an announcement, a proclamation. And it's where our minds automatically go, and we, we think that maybe these words are written for people who are caught in despair, people who need a message of hope, because that's what these words 
ultimately declare. But if you read the surrounding context of Isaiah, that's not actually the sense that you get. Far from people who are in despair, these words were written to a people who were incredibly arrogant, who didn't believe that they needed a sovereign anymore. They had become their own rulers. The fact of the matter is, if you read the context of the people that Isaiah is writing to, they almost entirely missed the message and missed the hope because something else besides despair had taken over. Even though they lived in a context where war was looming on every side, they felt self-sufficient. And the reason was because they had bought into what many of us buy into at the Christmas season, a settled skepticism. What is skepticism? Well, at this time period, it looked like this. They didn't believe that it mattered what they believed or how they behaved. That essentially, God wouldn't care that God was no longer in the moment with them, that God was somehow removed. Or if he was in it, he was in it for his own selfish purposes. You know, if you read through Job, you'll find that that is essentially Satan's accusation against God, is that Job is in it for his own selfish ends, and God is in it for his own selfish ends. And the story of Job unwraps that and tells a different narrative than the one Satan wants us to believe. And here we have this settled skepticism sort of invading this story. And so this message of hope essentially falls in that generation on deaf ears. How do you get to that point of skepticism where you no longer believe that it matters what you believe or how you behave? It happens when you lose the plot in the story. When the main events no longer seem to tie together, they seem disconnected. And like it no longer matters, like it's meaningless. There's this disconnectedness to life. Christmas time can feel that way for us. In the hustle and the bustle, we we begin to miss the real meaning of the story. It happens when your sense of expectation and reality don't match. This is essentially the the way we defined Israel at this time that the prophecy is given. There's a story a few hundred years later, part of the Christmas story, that enunciates this mindset that can invade our lives. It's evocative, it's emotional, and it's a little bit of a tragedy. It's a story about a priest, Zechariah, you know him. He's the one who fathers John the baptizer, And Zechariah is caught unaware of the significance of the moment. He doesn't understand what part of the story is in. We know that because when the angel Gabriel shows up and announces great joy and great hope that his wife in her old age would bear a child, we know from the gospel writers how it was not received by him. Not only does he encounter the story with fear, which maybe we can understand, but he encounters the angel, hears the message, and responds with skepticism, unbelief. There's something about Zechariah that doesn't allow him to buy it. He needed proof, and as a result, there's a judgment that he experiences that becomes a sign for the people around Somewhere along the line, and we don't know how it all happened because the Bible doesn't record us, but we could probably imagine. Somewhere along the line, as Zechariah looked out onto the world in which he was living, skepticism began to evade his heart. His faith 
instead of being a vibrant faith, believing and anticipating what is to come becomes a faith filled with atrophy and a lethargic faith. Somewhere along the line, because of the injustices, because, because of the dominance of the Roman Empire, because of the waywardness of the people, something in the spiritual leader began to calcify. His heart began to harden. And so when the moment came for a great prophecy of great hope to emerge, he just dismissed it. Something about it didn't measure up to the expectations he had now bought into. It happened to all of us. Something about life no longer made sense, and it warped his sense of justice. In fact, maybe one of the problems that Zechariah had was all the injustice in the world and a God who was seemingly doing nothing about it. Which brings us to today's question as we carry on into this series called The Age of the Messiah. The question is this, how do we reconcile the world of injustice, conflict, and unrighteousness in the age of the Messiah? When we're living in an age where we believe that there is a king and there is a kingdom, how do we answer this question? It's an important question. It's a question that we actually must answer to be everything that we're called to be. We need to understand it. We need to know where to go with it. So today I want to take you there, but really, Isaiah takes us there, doesn't he? In fact, what Isaiah does to answer this question, I believe, is he gives us an image of the future. And by giving us an image of the future, he actually helps us to understand our present. In fact, we're going to look at it now as we go to Isaiah 9, verse 7. Listen to what he says. He says, he... This is the child king. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to sustain it. And Isaiah essentially is cluing us in on something. That one of the reasons we experience injustice in today's world is because the king is not yet reigning as yet he will reign someday. That there's something incomplete in the story. In other words, we're in this world where we are not at the end of the story. The end of the story is not when Jesus is born, when the Messiah comes, but the end of the story is when Messiah reigns, which means we're in the middle of a story. And we need to understand that because knowing that you're in the middle of the story helps us to carry the plot forward, helps us to understand the significance of the events that we currently face. Isaiah is suggesting that not everything is complete, and until it is complete, recognize where you're at in this story. The king isn't ruling as he will someday. The fact of the matter is, is we are between what's called two advents. Advent simply just means coming. This is the advent season we're in. And Christ came, and Isaiah tells us in verse 6 that Christ came. The first advent and then he is coming and he will reign on a physical throne in Jerusalem. That's what the throne of David means. And that day has not yet come. And between the two advents is the kingdom and a king. But because we're in between, we're in the middle story, we need to understand how that plays out. Because we're in the middle story, it is why, it is why we still pay our taxes, we still obey ruling authorities, even though there is a king in heaven and his name is Jesus. It's why we plant gardens 
in Alaska, and only a third of it actually grows. At least that's my garden. It's why, to borrow from Narnia, it's why we don't talk to animals or reason with bears. Because we're in the middle story. We're in a situation where the Bible describes it that we are already in the kingdom, but not yet. Not everything that has been promised has been delivered upon. We're waiting for something that is yet in the future, while being at the same time very much relying on the fact that there is, in fact, a king who's ruling and reigning. We're in this already but not yet story between the advents. And this is our situation. And this is how we're asked to live in this middle story. But it begs the question, if this is our situation, what kind of a king then is he? And it's an interesting question because as you look through the Gospels, there are actually some different perspectives and elements that emerge that are all important and special. For instance, when Jesus comes, he comes to the nation of Israel, the lost house of the sheep of Israel. But what we know is that this Israel, the nation of Israel, did not receive him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And as a result, the picture or the image we get of the king is that he is a king in exile. Someday his people will receive him, but that day has not yet come. There's a future for Israel with a king ruling from Jerusalem, but right now he's a king in exile. That's the way it looks. That's the way it feels currently in our situation in the middle story. A different perspective emerges with Pilate. When Pilate interviews Jesus, he's not sure who the guy is, and so Jesus describes himself and he says, my kingdom, Pilate, is not of this world. And what he means to suggest is my kingdom is over your kingdom. It's bigger than your kingdom. Whatever your kingdom thinks Think Whatever you think your kingdom is, my kingdom supersedes it. It has more power, more glory, more authority than your kingdom. So you can do whatever you need to, but just recognize I am a great ruler. And as a result, Pilate tacks onto the cross, king of the Jews. He misunderstands the nature of the kingdom, but Jesus is clear. My kingdom is not of this world. It supersedes it. We actually get very helpful language, language we've already unpacked here in the room in the last couple of weeks, when it comes to what the gospel writers want us to think when we think of the kingdom in the context of the middle story between the two advents. They give us a word, and the word is this, it's Emmanuel, God with us. Now this is important because what it means, what it means is that God's story was always meant to intersect with our story. This is the big grand narrative that God wants to be with us. He wants to be with you. He wants to be in the room and he wants you to be in the room with him. This is what God wants, but also tells us that the kingdom is an open door, that what God wants is to open the door so that anybody can enter because he wants everybody to enter his kingdom. And so the kingdom right now is open. The time to enter the kingdom is right now. Today is the day. And the invitation is always being extended here in the middle story. But it tips us off to something else as well. It tips us off to one way God battles corruption and injustice in our world. One way God will fight injustice 
is by conquering the darkness within. This is what Emmanuel really means. It has that idea that that God is actually going to be with us to, to cure us of the darkness. That one of the battles that God is in is the battle for you, for your life, for your soul, to bring light into all the dark and hidden places that we experience, the things that keep us down, that keep us hidden and in the dark. God's light will shine. One of the ways that God battles injustice is by shining his light into the darkness of our lives all over the world. In fact, this is what we get out of the story of the demoniac. Remember that story where Jesus is supposed to be wooing the religious leaders to declare himself to be the Messiah in Jerusalem. But instead, we find Jesus out in Galilee of the Gentiles. And he's in a boat and he's heading for shore. And he discovers or encounters a demoniac. And it's all part of his great plan because he really wants to illustrate something to his disciples. His disciples who believe that the kingdom doesn't have a middle. That it goes straight from a child is born to a son of David on the throne. And Jesus wants to describe something they have access to, a power they have access to, and the way the kingdom operates in the middle story. And so he illustrates this by going to the other side, and he encounters the demoniac who comes out, who has been sinned against and has done an incredible amount of sinning against others. Uh, The truth of the matter is the guy's life was an absolute mess. But it's here that Jesus encounters the darkness and roots it out. He frees and releases the demoniac. Listen, he could have gone to all the authorities, to all the rulers in the region, and fixed the injustices, but he didn't. He pursued a man, an individual. It was a one-to-one relationship. This is what he was after, and he was illustrating for disciples that this is how the kingdom will grow. It will manifest itself by overcoming the darkness in each of our lives for anybody who receives it. Anybody who says, let me in, will be received. The darkness can be rooted out of their lives. But there's another way that God fights against injustice. And it's a way that, well, we don't often talk about. It's like, um, it's like that, that, that dark closet where we don't know what will emerge or where it will carry us. And there's a word to describe it. It's the word wrath. We don't know what to do with this word. It's a scary word. It just simply means to punish. And yet, it's a critical word. It's an important word when it comes to how we understand God's Emmanuel experience. If God is with us, he must be fighting injustice. How does he do it? Here's another way. He fights injustice through his wrath. You need to know, and everybody everywhere needs to know, that it's not okay to know what is right and to do what is wrong. It is not okay to sin against others. It is not okay for you to harm and to hurt and then get off scot-free. And this is why God's wrath is so critical. It's so important. It is linked with his love. It's this element that, again, we don't talk about very often, but is absolutely essential. If we take down all the barriers and all the borders, watch what comes in. The reality is, is that God is always working against evil. And for those who have been sinned against, this is a critical and often missing teaching in Christianity. 
God knew what happened to you, and he was there, and I want you to know, and I want you to believe. There is an answer for that, and it is the wrath of God. It is how he fights injustice. It's simply this. It's his resistance against sin. Now, some of you are out there and going, well, am I experiencing the wrath of God? I've sinned against others. I want you to know this. The wrath of God is always attached to his truth. Once he's revealed the truth, and then we have resisted the truth, and we remain unrepentant, when we no longer turn from that sin, that is when the wrath of God comes to play. The classic illustration of that is the city of Nineveh, who was doing literally everything wrong, and yet what does the love of God propel him to do? He calls a prophet. He sends the prophet. The prophet speaks, and the people have an opportunity to, to repent. And as a result, what stops? The wrath of God that had been declared is removed from that story. But the wrath of God is one way God stops sin in its tracks. Another way that God stops sin in its tracks is through the church. We call it the bride, the bride of Christ. Paul talks about us with the language of an ambassador, that we're ambassadors, that we don't represent ourselves, we represent God himself in our communities. And we're making an appeal, an appeal to the community who is lost, that, that there is a way to be reconnected to Emmanuel. So we are called the pillar of truth in the community. We're the guardians of the truth. Now, that doesn't mean that the church is the only place you can discover truth. God has his glory revealed everywhere. Truth is everywhere. But we are especially responsible for it, which means your pastor is not the only one who is responsible to know the truth and to preach it. You are too. That this is a responsibility the church has been given. You've got to know the truth in order to help mankind fight injustice and to do so with effectiveness. So these three things all come together, but Isaiah is about more than just that. Isaiah shares so many insights into the nature and plan of God. In fact, many scholars and theologians have said, if you just understood Isaiah, you would understand the entire Old Testament. Just like many scholars would say, if you just understood Romans, you'd understand the entire New Testament. It's such a fantastic book, and it carries on with so much, but there's another thing it emphasizes in terms of this conversation we're in about injustice, and it emerges in this passage, but it, it emerges in the book as a whole, and that is that sometimes the reason injustice persists in our world is because we have misplaced hope. That even though the truth is there and God is at work and all of these good things, that sometimes we just lower our eyes. And instead of looking at the king who will bring righteousness, we look at the leaders who promise it but never can execute it. Leaders, we fawn over them. We believe them when they give us promises about how they're going to improve our lives. And yet the reality is, is that that can be a misplaced hope because they cannot always deliver on the promise. And Isaiah wants us to lift our eyes higher to a new king who can actually deliver the goods. In fact, in fact, he emphasizes that by, by only mentioning four kings in verse one and then never mentioning or never addressing another king for the rest 
of the book of Isaiah, as if to suggest, stop putting your hope in human leaders. They're probably leading you in the wrong direction. In fact, listen to how he says it. He says this, the zeal of the Lord of armies will bring in this kingdom. In other words, you won't. Your leader won't. In fact, in fact, as soon as leaders begin to think that they are, they end up just starting to build their own kingdoms. The reality is, is that oftentimes church people get this confused. Before World War I and World War II, the large majority of people in America believed that it was our responsibility to rid the culture of sin and bring in the millennium, to bring in the kingdom. After two world wars, we lost that theology. It began to reemerge in a time of peace during the Obama administration. I remember hearing it again, and now, not so much. When our theology rides the wave of the news, we've got a real issue. We're not here to bring it in. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The Lord of armies is the one who will bring in the kingdom. So what are we supposed to think about this kingdom? Because maybe this is where our story connects to this text. How do we view the kingdom? What is it? And what are we supposed to do with it? Are we supposed to bring it? Are we bringing in the kingdom? Are we supposed to wait for the kingdom? No, we're not supposed to wait for the kingdom. We're already in it. Between the two advents in this middle story, the king is alive and the kingdom advances. So what are we supposed to think? Here's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to pursue it. In fact, the Bible says, seek first his kingdom. Seek it. Seek it. I remember in high school, my freshman year, I did some wrestling, and part of training for that season at the beginning of the year was inviting the Marine Corps, United States Marine Corps wrestling team to come to practice. And these guys were just absolutely brutes. They were thick. They were, they were just, they were incredible uh, specimens. And I remember them coming in. Some of them already been to the Olympics. Some of them were training for the 96 Olympics in Atlanta. And, and you know, my eyes were just like open to the whole world of, of wrestling. And, and they, they trained us. But at the end of that session, um, which was incredibly intense, I remember, at the end of that session, uh, we got a picture of the Marine Corps wrestling team. And on the back of it, we could go around at the end of practice and they could sign it. One of the guys put on the back of that picture, train like a madman, which was an interesting idea for me in the culture that I grew up in. The idea of trying to be a madman wasn't like top on the list. Like, what does that even mean? Train like a madman. It means to pursue something at the expense of other things. It means to be focused, to leverage my energies in one direction. It means to put some blinders on. It means to dig. It means to fight. It means to move. It means to, to go forward, to have progress. It means to, to grip tightly to something and not let go. I remember espousing that model and that mindset. Train like a madman. This is what we are called to in the middle story. Seek first his kingdom. In fact, we actually have a story of that taking place in the Bethlehem narrative. It's a story of magi who come from the east. Remember them? 
They come from the east, but what's interesting about the Magi is not just that they come from the east, but how far from the east they come. There were Magi in the region where Mary and Joseph have the Christ, but these Magi come all the way from ancient Babylon. And many people understand this, but those Magi come because they had at least a copy of the book of Daniel. But perhaps, and many scholars believe, they had all the prophets, or perhaps had even encountered all the Old Testament by the time that the Messiah comes. And so the Magi come because they have read the words, and they believe there's a king. But here's what's so amazing to me about this story, that they travel over mountain and over desert extensively because they want to pursue a king. They were under authority of kings. They understood kings, and yet they pursue a king, which means they understood something about the nature of placing your hope in humanity and human leaders. They were searching for something else that the world could not offer. They were excited about it. They were willing to put their reputations on the line for it. They were willing to bring their treasure to honor it. It was as if the words of Jesus were emerging in the Magi that the kingdom is worth everything. It's like searching for buried treasure in a field. Go for it. Dig after the pearl. Sell everything you own just to get to it. And the Magi do just that. What's remarkable is that after reading the words of the prophecy about the king, when they see the star, unlike Zechariah, the Magi respond with faith. You see, they didn't just read the word or hear the prophecy or pay attention to the tradition or go for a heartwarming experience with Jesus. They came to worship a king. The words that they read, they believed and benefited from which is what really Isaiah calls us to do, believe something. As he utters these words about the prophecy of the coming king, he's calling us to believe something in this middle story. What is it that he's calling us to believe? Well, something that I think for many is actually hard to believe, and here it is. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness. From now on and forever. That's hard to believe. And for many, it's impossible to believe, and yet this is exactly what Isaiah is calling us to believe at this time of the year. In this moment, the question is, can we believe it? In other words, Isaiah is saying what God has promised, he is able to deliver. Will you believe it? The Magi believed it, and they get it on that incredible story that we try to bring forward into our homes 2,000 years later. They believed that Israel, all Israel, will come home. They believed that there would be peace on earth, that justice would be dealt with, that the king was coming. And Isaiah calls us to believe exactly the same thing. Isaiah calls us to a place of hope in a world filled with injustice. Which leads me to this principle I want to put in front of you for consideration. Perhaps, perhaps, the greatest force against injustice 
in our world is hope itself. Think about it. I invite the worship team to come at this time, but I want to I call you to what I love so much about this story. Isn't it an amazing story? What I love about this story is that in a world that is filled with skepticism, we are called to a place of hope at Christmas time. Isaiah calls us backwards to a child. A child will be born. And as a result, he calls us forward in our faith. Far from atrophy, far from hearts that are clouded over by hardness, we're softened by the prediction of a king who will deliver on the goods. But doesn't just call us backwards. Isaiah also calls us forward to a time yet to come, a second advent, a time when a king will reign on a throne here on earth. And by calling us forward, he is informing us about how to live in the present. In the middle story, in the middle story, it's here we remember the significance of Christmas. We revisit and retell and rediscover the plot that we find ourselves in and recognize the significance again of the moment. It's where Isaiah wants us. For many of us, we come at Christmas and it's just another heartwarming holiday, but not for the authors of Scripture, not for the early Christians. And really, it can't be for us. It's got to be more than that. It's a story about a king. It's a story about a king who was, who is, and who is to come. Which leaves us with this one question. Are we living now like the king is coming again? That's what we're supposed to do. That's what we're called to do in the middle story. Let me pray for you. God, you're good and your greatness has yet to be fully realized here on earth, but we know the day is coming when you will reveal and manifest yourself in a way like the world has never known. Today, we have the opportunity to be able to believe you for it and to experience something of the magic of the story of Christmas. May it bless our hearts and prompt us to move forward in real heartfelt faith and affection. In the name of Jesus, we pray and ask it. Amen. Church, would you stand with me? As we close, I want to thank you for coming. Hope you drive safe as you leave. But I want to let you know, something's coming. First of the year, 21 days of prayer and fasting. Are you ready? Do you have a plan? Where are you heading? The information for that is online. It's on the app. Take a look. We'll tell you more, but be prepared for what's coming. We know that's an important part of our year. In the meantime, we love you. Um, we're thankful for you, and our prayer team is up here and ready for you as you're dismissed. If there's anything you need to pray about, avail yourself of that opportunity. Otherwise, church, you guys have a great afternoon. We'll see you later. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play. Thank you.